All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to um, Redemption Church. My name is Reggie, and uh, this morning, we're going to be taking a look at Amos chapter 6. Over the past several weeks, and for the next several weeks here at Redemption, uh, we will be moving through some of the minor prophets. And uh, the minor prophets, the minor prophets are uh, short books. I'm not sure what's going on with the microphone there, but we'll get it. Uh, the Minor Prophets are short books in the Old Testament, but uh, just because they're short doesn't mean that they don't pack an incredibly powerful punch. And so this morning, like I said, Amos chapter 6 is specifically what we will be looking at um, as we move forward. So I'm going to read Amos chapter 6 for us if you want to turn there, if you have your Bibles. Uh, Amos chapter 6, there's 14 verses. I'm going to read through them all, so it may take a second, uh, but this is God's Word. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster, and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory, stretch themselves out on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. The revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds. And I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. When one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house, shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there anyone, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no, and he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. God, Amos 6 is an incredibly rough chapter to read. But God, it's your word, and you have something for us here. And so God, this morning, I pray that you would move me out of the way, that we would hear from you, and ultimately that Christ would be lifted high, and that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus and Jesus alone. God, I, I recognize that my words are of little importance here. God, but what we would hear from you is of utmost importance. So I pray that our hearts and minds would be tuned into you, that you would speak to us, 
through your Holy Spirit that we might be changed in this place this morning. And God, we ask this in the precious name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. When I first moved into the house that I live in now, over 10 years ago, there was this little tiny oak tree in my front yard. It was a little skinny tree. Uh, It wasn't that tall. The branches weren't that wide. There weren't really that many leaves on it. Today, 10 years later, that tree's a good, I don't know, 35, maybe 40 feet tall. And this summer, when the tree is covered with leaves, basking in the sunshine, that one tree, because it's so large, will keep much of my front yard in the shade all day. Most of my grass will probably die this summer. And every year that's gone by since we've moved into this house, Amy and I will be out on a walk or we'll be doing something and we'll comment on how big the tree has grown, how big the tree has grown, how much more of the view of the house gets blocked every year because this tree gets bigger and bigger. And after spending several weeks in the book of Amos, after reading about Amos and listening to Amos as much as we can, as much as Ben and I have been able to, I've started to picture the message of the book of Amos to be something like a tree. When you look at a tree, you're looking at the trunk, you're looking at the branches, you're looking at the leaves, the the fruit that maybe is on the tree. You're looking at what's immediately obvious to your sight, but you don't see the roots. You don't see the part of the tree that's nurturing the tree, that's providing and absorbing nutrients and water and the very thing that causes the tree to grow so large. As I think about the book of Amos, the trunk of the, the, trunk of the tree, the, the branches, what's immediately obvious to our sight when we read through the book of Amos is a message of God's judgment. It's a message of woe and sorrow and a coming exile, and you can't miss it just like you couldn't miss the tree in my front yard if you were to come to my house today. And in chapter 6, what we just read, well, that's the culmination of everything that's happened in Amos up until this point. Woe to those who are at ease. Woe to those who eat and drink and pamper themselves. Woe to those that ignore, ignore the ruin of Joseph. And Joseph just being another name for Israel. Joseph just being another name. Woe to those who are prideful. Woe to those who boast in their wealth and status. Woe to those who trust in their wealth and their economy and their military might. Woe to those who heap injustice upon injustice upon those around them. Woe because God is raising up a nation that will oppress you from top to bottom. That's how Amos 6 ends. From the north to the south, from Labo Hamath to the brook of Arabah, you will be oppressed because of your injustice, because of your idolatry, because you've forsaken the very God who is your God. What has caused God's judgment to grow so big and so fast and so strong in the book of Amos? It's the roots. It's the roots of idolatry, the fact that they've forsaken God, that their religious rituals are man-centered and based around 
justifying themselves. It's that they are willing, willingly oppressing others for their own benefit, that they use their positions of privilege to step on others rather than to treat them righteously as God intended. It's their addiction to luxury. It's their indifference to honesty. It's their hard-heartedness against the poor. And so if you want to know how to grow a tree of God's judgment, all you have to do is read the book of Amos. The book of Amos is a textbook on that. And Amos 6 is God's oath that the terrible day of the Lord is coming. Chapter 5 last week, Ben introduced us to this idea. The terrible day of the Lord is coming. Because of their injustice, those who are at ease in Israel are about to meet God like a ravenous lion. Because of their idolatry, they are about to meet God like a bear robbed of her cubs. Because of their pride, because their pride has led them to turn righteousness into poison and justice into something bitter, they are about to meet God like a snake hiding in their house. Do you know how frightening it is to have a snake in your house? Not to make light of God's word here, but I've had a snake in my house. Not long ago, a couple years ago, Amy and I and the girls came home, and right inside the front door of our house, there was a baby snake. It was so tiny, but it was so terrifying. And so I'm not saying that I did, but there's a chance I freaked out. There's a chance that I started screaming a little bit. There's a chance that my girls will tell you the story and laugh at me if you ask them after church today. Matter of fact, they still laugh at me quite often about it. I figured after the snake was in our house, we had two choices. We could move out or we could burn it down. I'm not sure what else there is. But chapter 6 is the terrifying realization that the snake is in the house. It's the terrifying realization that judgment is near. And just to recap what we read a second ago, there was a lot of verses, right? A lot of verses, 14 verses. But essentially this text is divided into two different paragraphs. Verses 1 through 7 focus in on a sense of security and complacency that these people have derived from their affluence, their positions of privilege. And verses 8 through 14 focus in on the pride that results from their affluence, from their military victories, from their strong cities, from their wealth, all these other things. And even though Amos is speaking primarily to the northern kingdom in the book of in the book of Amos, like we've talked about so far, in verse 1, he references both Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, and Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. And he specifically calls out the leaders in a sarcastic way. These first couple of verses, he calls them the notable men of the first of the nations. Verse 2, he tells them that they are no different and no more secure than any of the nations around them. That even though their economy is great and they have no real threats, they're still not recognizing how perilous their situation is because of their idolatry and injustice and pride. He goes on in verse 3 in a confusing and somewhat paradoxical way to, to continue the comparisons of verse 2 to say that your comfort, your ease, your thinking, that you're pushing the day of God's judgment away 
but you're not. It's actually bringing judgment nearer to you than you can even fathom. In verses 4 through 7, Amos highlights the lavish lifestyle of these notable people who ate and drank and essentially compared themselves to King David. He accuses them of ignoring the very fact that their injustice and affluence and pride, their idolatry is actually causing their very nation to rot from the inside out. They don't even see how what they're doing is actually ruining everything around them while they are at ease and complacent. The passage turns in verse 8, verses 8 through 11, as God describes his utter abhorrence and hatred of their pride, of their trust in their homes and their palaces and their cities. Verses 12 through 14 describes the absurdity of their pride in themselves, of their smugness. Have you ever been around someone who is smug and prideful? Who doesn't have ears to hear? I used to work for this guy. He was my supervisor at the time, and he was one of the most smug people I knew. He always thought he was the smartest person in the room, no matter what the situation was. He would take credit for other people's work, for the people who worked for him, he always talked about how much he was doing, how much he accomplished, how important he was. And he would actually talk to his staff and tell us that maybe one day we could be as great as he was. Do you know what that did to the staff that worked for him? It did not cause us to respect him. It caused us all to turn against him, to use some strong language, to detest having to work for him. Because his pride and his smugness was completely unbearable. God has looked at the pride of his people in Amos chapter 6 and he hates it. He abhors it. In verse 12, he talks about the absurdity of their pride. Just like it's absurd that a horse would run on rocky cliffs. Just like it's absurd that oxen would be used to plow the rocky cliffs, or to plow the sea. There's some translation difficulties in verse 12, but either idea that oxen would be used to plow the sea or that oxen would be used to plow rocky cliffs, either idea is absurd. It's absurd that Israel would take pride in their military prowess or their affluence or their status in the world while ignoring the very thing that defines the people of God as much as anything else. God intended his people to reflect his very character to the world. God intended his people to be a blessing to the world. The very things he cared about, God expected his people to care about and to reflect those things to the world. Things like justice and righteousness and holiness. And just for the sake of clarity, clarity what do we mean when we talk about biblical justice because we've talked about it for a few weeks now when we talk about biblical justice this is what we mean Thibiti and Yabile defines justice in this way doing the right thing to the right extent for the right people in the right way at the right time 
according to a right interpretation of God's word. And God's people were not doing any of that. So when we think about justice, we're thinking about the fact that all people are due certain things. They have certain rights because they are created in the image of God. Justice is about what people are due because they're created in the image of God. And God expects his people to treat others according to their God-given status that they are made in the image of God. But in Amos 6, these people are reminded that they've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into something bitter. They have utterly corrupted the very thing that should divine the people of God. And God hates their pride. Because a love of what's right and just is a characteristic of God himself, and so it should characterize his people. What defines the people of God in the Old Testament as much as anything else is their love for others, the way they interact with others, the way they treat one another, the way they treat others. And here, the northern kingdom, when Amos is proclaiming what God has for them, they're boasting in their affluence. And they don't even realize that they've offended a holy God through their pride, their meaningless worship rituals, their practices of oppression. In verse 13, Amos, going on, uses puns to bitingly belittle the military victories the Israelites had won at these two cities that, that are in that verse, Lodabar and Karnaim. He crushes their pride. He says this, You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, Have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? Lodabar means a, a thing of nothing. Karnaim means something like strength or something that shines. And so Amos says to them in this using puns that your affluence and your military strength has brought you nothing of value. What you think you've done on your own is worthless. And then he finishes chapter 6 by saying that a foreign nation will oppress you from north to south, from top to bottom, because you've forsaken your God. In retrospect, as we look back at the book of Amos, as we look at what happened afterwards, we see that Amos's warning of coming judgment did not lead to repentance across the northern kingdom. God's people are eventually, in the northern kingdom, are eventually put into exile. There's a remnant left. God saves a remnant of his people, but these people are brought into exile by the Assyrians. The northern kingdom of Israel ceases to exist. And it's almost as if an entire biblical book seems to have been preached in vain because these people didn't have ears to hear. We know it was not in vain. We know that's not true. But since Amos's word is from God and has been preserved for us in Scripture, perhaps we had better measure its true success not by its effect on Samaria, but by its effect on us here at Redemption Church in Augusta, Georgia. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure 
on the mountain of Samaria. Woe to those who are at ease in Augusta. Woe to those who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Do you hear God's heart in those verses? Do you hear his heart? There is a hatred of pride, a detest of smugness, anger that his people are ignoring the very rotten fruit of injustice that they themselves have caused to grow. And so, Redemption Church, I've got to ask you, are you, are we defined by pride and smugness and complacency and injustice? Before you think there is no way these things define us, consider this. Pride and smugness and complacency is really just the idolatry of worshiping ourselves of thinking that we, that I, am the most important, most cherished thing possible. Pride will affect the way we view God. Pride will affect the way we view ourselves. Pride will affect the way we view others and the way we view the world around us. Pride will tell us that our comfort, our ease, our complacency is more important than anything else. We will be worshiping ourselves before we even realize that we're doing it. We'll be naive to our own idolatry. Pride will tell us that since we are the most important and most cherished people in the universe and the most important and most cherished person in the universe, that everyone else in the universe exists for my good. And it's a very small step to go from there to willingly oppressing others for my comfort. Pride will make me forget that I exist to demonstrate the characteristics of God to others, that I exist to be what God intends me to be. Pride will deceive us into thinking that the world around us is to be used to give me what I want. Pride will tell us that God sees the world and everything in it the exact same way that I do. Barbara Brown Taylor put it this way, Many of the people in need of saving are in churches, and at least part of what they need saving from is the idea that God sees the world the same way they do. May we learn to see the world the way God does and to not get those two things confused, right? And this pride is not just an individual thing. How do you think the fruit of pride blossoms in our community of faith here at Redemption Church? It would be easy to take what Amos is saying and try to apply it to our nation. I don't think that's a one-to-one correlation. In Amos, 
He's speaking to God's people, and so we have to hear what God is speaking to his people in Amos, and we've got to apply it first right here to ourselves in our community of faith. And so how do you think the fruit of pride blossoms in our community? Maybe it shows up in the way we talk about our sin around here. Maybe we speak about sin with a sort of confident swagger, talking about how imperfect we are, laughing and joking. But sin is no smiling matter. And if somehow it has become one, we're missing the point. We aren't perfect. That's true. And because we're not perfect, Jesus died in our place on the cross, satisfied the justice of God in our place. And so our talk of sin should be as a humble confession and not as a pithy announcement. Maybe it shows up in the way we talk about other churches. Our church versus other churches. We're not like those other churches. We're cool. I think what Ben said was we're too cool for school. But those people in those other churches who aren't here, well, Jesus died for them too. Jesus bore the weight of God's justice for them too. Maybe it shows up in our prayerlessness. Maybe it shows up in what we aren't saying. A lack of prayer says that we don't really need God's help or wisdom or intervention or provision. Honest prayer is just a declaration of dependence on God. And a lack of prayer just might be a declaration of our pride and our self-sufficiency. Jesus himself knew the importance of prayer and it defined his life. It should probably define ours. There's this incredible thing that happens in New Orleans. Uh, I, I love New Orleans. Um, I graduated from a seminary that's in New Orleans, and um, it's a great place. When you think of New Orleans, you often think of Bourbon Street. I think that's the wrong thing to think about. If you're thinking about Bourbon Street, you're, you might be missing some of New Orleans. But there's this thing that happens in New Orleans that's pretty unique, it's this thing called a second-line parade. Does anybody know what a second-line parade is? Second-line parade is when a New Orleans brass band and their drummers lead a procession of people through the streets. And, um, and the second line is the group of people who come behind the band who are celebrating and dancing along with what's happening. I've never seen a second line parade that doesn't make me smile. I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's possible to experience one or to see one without a sense of joy. There's something incredible about it. So the main line goes out and leads the parade, and the second line is all the people that are following and dancing and spinning umbrellas and waving handkerchiefs and just enjoying participating in what's happening. And that's really the most important part of a second line. It's not the band. It's not the music. It's the people who join in and participate and celebrate. And a second line is such, such a part of New Orleans life that many funerals turn into second line parades. So a funeral will start somber 
There'll be time for grief. There'll be a time for silence. There'll be a time for lamentation. But eventually, when the funeral is done, when they're leaving the grave, the second line is going to start. And the point of the second line is to remember. The point of the second line is to celebrate. It's to celebrate the loved one that has passed. It's to remember the loved one that has passed. And so the funeral starts with a time of grief and lamentation. If you were here last week, that is exactly what Ben called us to. A time of grief. A time to mourn over our own sin. A time to lament how we've contributed to the sin and the injustice of our society and our world. But the funeral eventually turns to a time of celebration for the purpose of remembering. And so the call for us this morning, as we see all the woe that is proclaimed upon the northern kingdom of Israel in Amos chapter 6, the call for us is to remember. The call for us is to remember the grace of Christ. The call for us is to remember what Christ has done for us, to remember his grace for us, to remember what he's done for his people, both for the people of the Old Testament and for us here, to remember how Jesus showed us what God is like, how he willingly emptied himself and became a servant to all and died. To remember how Jesus extended unmerited grace to us, grace that we do not deserve. That's the call today, remember Jesus. This is why that's the call. Remembering Jesus is the antidote to our pride and our smugness and our complacency. If we walk away from Amos 6 without realizing that the cure for our pride, our smugness, our ease, our rotten fruit that the cure for our pride is to remember the grace and goodness of Jesus. If we don't walk away from Amos chapter 6 with that in mind, then we're missing something. We're hearing God's judgment, which is deserved. But Amos chapter 6, like all the minor prophets do, point us directly to what Jesus has done for us. And the antidote for the sin and the mess of Amos is Jesus and his grace. Amos chapter 6 is a hard chapter. It's an announcement of woe. And where Israel went wrong was in the forsaking and the forgetting of God and his deliverance and their idolatry that led them to all sorts of evilness. And so this morning, let's not forget the deliverance that we have in Jesus. So maybe this week, we need to take a little time to remember God's goodness and grace. Because sadly, like the people in Amos, we're pretty forgetful. And forgetfulness is dangerous because it shapes the way we think about ourselves and about others. When we remember God's grace, we remember that we've done nothing to deserve it. When we remember his generosity, we're humble and thankful and tender, when we remember that ultimately everything comes from our Father, we don't exult in our affluence or our privilege. Instead, we thank God for His blessing. 
And when we forget God's grace, we proudly tell ourselves that what we have is what we've achieved. When we forget his generosity, we take credit for what only his blessings could produce. When we forget his grace, we become entitled and self-righteous and smug. When we forget God's generosity and think that we're deserving of it, we find it very easy to withhold generosity from others. We think that we're getting what we deserve and that they are too. Our hardened hearts are not moved for those whose life is hard, for those who have been suffered injustice, for those who are unduly reaping the rotten fruit of our fallen world. And we forget that no one ourselves included, gets to stand before God as deserving of anything except by the work of Christ on the cross. Pride will cloud our vision and pride will distort the truth. So this morning, let's remember Jesus. Let's remember the grace that is ours because of Jesus. Let's remember his sacrifice in our place and the way Jesus satisfied the justice of God. Let's celebrate the victory that Jesus has won. Let's remember his example of humility and service and love. And let's boast in the death and resurrection and victory of Jesus alone. We're going to enter into a time of response. And as we respond, let's boast in Christ alone. As we respond, let's remember what Christ has done for us. And that's what our response is about. We're going to take communion in a second. The band's going to come um, and play for us here in just a second. You have an opportunity to sit where you are and pray and reflect on what God has been speaking to our hearts and minds. You have an opportunity to give. There's a giving basket in the back and other ways to give. Um, The way we take communion here at Redemption is we come down these side aisles, we tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. By doing that, we're remembering the body of Christ that was given for us. We're remembering the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And we're proclaiming to one another that we believe the gospel is true. So if God gives you the freedom to do so this morning, and that's something you want to remember, and something you can proclaim, I would invite you to come down these aisles, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember and so proclaim the good news of the gospel. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move on from there. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Amos chapter 6. Thank you that even though it's a difficult chapter, God, in it, we we see how the sin of our brokenness and fallenness requires a Savior. That in it, we see that things are messed up, but God, you have provided Jesus that we might have a right relationship with you, and because of our right relationship with you, we might be reconciled to others in a God-honoring way. Holy Father, I pray even now as we continue to respond, as we continue to celebrate, as we take communion, as we do all these things, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts to draw us to you. I pray that Christ would be lifted high that you would be honored and glorified. God, we ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.